This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, we are all set today to get a fiscal update from the Trudeau government. What will it look like? What is the health of the federal finances? Well, for more on that, we're going to join, be joined now by David Aiken, our Global News Chief Political Correspondent. Good morning, David. Good morning, Simi. Are we bracing ourselves for this? It, it sort of depends, I guess. I, I think the narrative that you're going to hear from the government is an improving federal fiscal picture, improving versus the last time uh, they sort of opened up the books, which was uh, in the budget in the spring, back in April. Um, and so back in April, they would have provided us with a variety of forecasts. And I think uh, everybody sort of agrees that the numbers are going to present today look a lot better than they did back in April. Revenues for the government are up. Expenses are down. Why is that? It's because our economy has improved at a much faster rate. And I know for some people, particularly in the tourism sector, things do not feel normal. But we just saw a jobs report for the last month which showed record low levels of unemployment in Quebec, record low levels of unemployment in Newfoundland and Labrador, um, tr record high levels of employment for women of what's called the core working age, 25 to 55. Um, so it was a jobs report that was fantastic. Unemployment is is down around 6%, and we're, we're, we've gained back every job we've lost in the pandemic and then some. So that's why revenues are up, because tax revenue is up. People are working and paying taxes. And the government is not spending as much on pandemic recovery supports. And that's why expenses are down. That said, we are still going to have some eye-watering red ink to talk about uh, later today. So I mentioned the, the narrative from the right. government is going to be, hey, things are not as bad or they're improving. But we're still, just after the first six months of this fiscal year, and the government's fiscal year starts on April the 1st, and so just six months in, we already had a deficit of $70 billion dollars. Deficit, $70 billion. Uh, and so And we still got six months to go. So we'll get an update on how big that deficit is going to be and some talk about the government in terms of that deficit's going to decline, how rapidly is going to be a question. And absolutely, you will not hear any talk of balanced budgets. The Trudeau government wasn't into providing us with balanced budget dates even before the pandemic, and they're certainly not interested in doing that now. They'll, they'll still be a very healthy deficit uh, at the end of the five-year forecast period, which they're going to talk about today. So so improving finances, but still a whole lot of red ink. And so what about spending promises? Because that's been a pretty big hallmark of a Trudeau government. Yeah, and so this is this is one of the things that I don't know if we'll hear a lot of new spending programs today, but because their fiscal picture has improved, you know, there's some economists out there who say, well, they might have essentially an extra $10 billion in uh, you know, what amounts for the government in changing the coach uh, that they can spend something on. If there's going to be some new spending programs, I, I expect we'll hear them 
in in the budget next spring. That's really the appropriate right. spot. We do know about one spending commitment that the government will detail today, and that is, and they announced this yesterday, uh, we know that the government has been in court uh, arguing against advocates for First Nations kids, kids who were pulled out of their homes, their family homes, and put into welfare. Harm was caused. We still have a very dysfunctional health and welfare system for First Nations kids. And the government yesterday, even even though it's still arguing in court and trying to negotiate something, said, listen, we're going to put aside $40 billion, $40 billion wow. over the next five years for compensation and to reform the health and welfare system for First Nations kids. So that that is money that is, uh, I think First Nations groups welcome that idea. There's still, you know, negotiations to be done and court cases to be mm-hmm. settled, but there is $40 mil- billion now uh, in the uh, in the bank, essentially, for that. Uh, other spending programs, there is a bill before Parliament to extend um, some pandemic recovery benefits, again, to specific sectors um, in the economy that are still hurting. That's worth about $7 billion. That's what the government's put on the table. Although I can tell you New Democrats think that's not enough. They want more money. Might it increase by a billion or two? Possibly. But right. those are really, th- uh, you know, those in terms of spending programs, that's what's on the table. I think one of the things for the longer term will be because we do have pretty strong job growth, you know, when when is the government going to start withdrawing some of this fiscal support um, to reduce inflation and get us back down to, um, you know, something a little right. more manageable? Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, about the issue of inflation, which has been like a hot topic right across the country. Is there any indication that the government is kind of paying attention to that? They're paying attention, but the government's point, and Christopher Freeland, the finance minister, made this point yesterday when she and the, the Bank of Canada governor, Tiff Macklem, they announced the, the bank's you know general operating, renewing the, the target uh, that the Bank of Canada operates under, which is to try to hold inflation to 2%. It's running way higher than that right now, 4 6%, depending on, on how you count it. But what Freeland said yesterday was, this isn't the government's fault, and there's not much the government of Canada can really do about it. Inflation is being caused globally by various supply chain snarls, etc. One of the big reasons why is during the pandemic, nobody went out. We didn't spend money on what would we'd call personal services sort of things. That's everything from physiotherapists to going to the movies, you name it. And instead, we took that money and we bought stuff, hard goods. And that just increased demand for those hard goods and caused these supply chain snarls, which is inflationary. That said, you will hear the opposition say, listen, if you're planning to spend $7 billion on more COVID supports or increase that, well, pumping that money into the economy, an economy that seems to be running pretty well right now, is by definition inflationary. So why are we continuing to spend the money? Right. So the government is going to have to try to explain that. And uh, and so far, their answer has been, you know, we can't leave people behind. Again, I mentioned the tourism sector. And there's still, you know, the big wild card with, with Omicron about to hit is is how will that impact uh, our economy? People may not be able to go to work. Schools may have to sh- shut down. It's a real wild card. And that will mean more f- fiscal support for provinces. Mm-hmm. So, so some big wild cards still associated with the pandemic as well. It sure sounds like it. All right, David, thank you. All right, David, thank you. Thanks. Cheers. This is Mornings with Simi. 
Hot topic here in BC right now has to do with rapid tests for COVID-19. BC has a stockpile of them given by the federal government, but we've never really used them or distributed them. Other provinces have used them quite regularly. Next door in Alberta, their policy is set to change today, according to Global News, where they will now be distributing those rapid tests. All of this in the face, of course, the ever-increasing Omicron variant. Here in BC, though, in particular, many parents believe wholeheartedly that rapid tests could be a game changer, particularly parents of daycare-aged kids in BC. They believe rapid testing would help save them time, money, and stress every single time their child has a bit of a sniffle while in daycare. And anybody who's had their children in daycare and mine were in daycare, you know the sniffles happen all the time. So we wanted to talk about the potential impact of this. Joining us is Allison Merton, Director of uh, Early Years at Collingwood Neighborhood House. Allison, thanks for being here. Good morning. Thank you for having me. How important do you think is this issue for parents? What's the impact of a sniffle in daycare these days? Well, I think it's important to remember that we're not just looking for a single sniffle um, because there is seasonal colds and allergies out there. Um, So the educators, you know, should be looking at their regular illness policy as well as the any COVID-19 safety plans or communicable disease plans that they have in place because we'll be you know they have those relationships with the children where they know their children very well and they know their ch- if their children are sick um, and often will present with other symptoms other than uh, just the sniffles. Right so then what is your policy with that how does that work? So um, our educators would be looking, like I say, for, for more than just sniffle symptoms. You know, parents would identify at the beginning of the day that they've done the daily health check on their child at home and that they're presenting well. Or if their child has seasonal allergies, usually we're aware of things like that before that. Um, and then some centres, you know, we certainly have a policy in place, you know, where there's a 24-hour exclusion for some, you know, some symptoms such as a fever or an upset tummy and all those, um, you know, more serious symptoms. And, you know, depending on how many cases uh, programs will have, that could be extended to 48 hours. So do you think rapid tests would be able to help in this situation? I think it's tricky for children. Um, You know, it's a little traumatizing. We've all had those COVID tests, even though the rapid tests are a little bit more less invasive. Um, So it is challenging with with that particular age group. I would see it more um, valuable for staff um, because we do know that the major transmissions tend to happen um, between adults. And, you know, it's typically adults that give it to those little children and not children to children. Right. So would you do you think this was something that if they were made available to daycares, this is something that you see Collingwood Neighborhood House would be able to make use of? I think any tools we have to reduce the risk of COVID-19 in the program should be looked at very seriously. And I would consider that, you know, for for some extreme cases, you know, not just the little sniffles, um, but certainly we would consider something like that. So our parents, they must be very nervous, Allison. Our parents are fantastic. They have been incredibly supportive throughout COVID. They have listened to us when we've had to change protocols because they change regularly. And, you know, and, and they have really made some concessions on their parts, too, because they're not allowed to come into programs for the most part, you know, reducing all that contact with the staff and building relationships. Um, but, yeah, they are still nervous. Yeah. And- 
That's a huge amount of trust, though, isn't it? Right? You already trust parents to, to daycare providers, <laughs> and now you're saying, "Trust us more. We can't let you come in a whole lot." Yeah, yeah, exactly. It it is uh, it has been a challenging time, but like I said, they've been certainly responsive because they want their kids safe too. They want to know that their kids are in good hands. Right. And so, have you changed anything in regards to what the kids do? Like, do they spend more time outdoors? How are the kids responding to this? Um, the kids, as we know, are resilient, um, but we have changed a lot of our processes and policies. You know, we've we've implemented, you know, like. Um, more toys or individualized play. We've we've in, um, introduced more outdoor play for sure. Um, obviously, our hygiene routines are, are stepped up. So you know they wash their hands a lot. Um, so yeah, we we we've had to step up all our policies. Boy, that's saying something, right? When you can get little kids to wash their hands a lot, <laughs> you got to make it fun. <laughs> oh yeah, I'll bet you do. Okay, because we're talking about children here, Allison, right? That are that are below mm-hmm. the five year mark that that, are, that yeah. can't get the shots, even with the children vaccination. That's right. So, you know, a lot of the onus falls on the educators and the parents to, to be responsible with their hygiene practices too, um, you know, and use all the tools that are available to us. Like I said, the daily health check, the mask, the physical distancing, and now the vaccine. So a lot of it does fall fall on the adults and the programs for sure. Do you hope to hear about some changes then in the next little while? Um, we have recently just had our um, childcare guidance updated um, through BCH and the Public Health Office, um, and that only changed once throughout COVID. So I don't expect that there's major changes coming, but you know, the introduction of, of these rapid tests would be something that we would uh, would be interested in hearing about. All right, we'll see what happens. Allison, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you so much. And good luck. Allison Merton is the director of Early Years at Collingwood Neighborhood House. I can't even imagine how challenging it is for daycares right now because you're mainly talking about children under the age of five, right, who are not eligible even now uh, for any kind of vaccination. And so it is tricky. And think about how messy kids are and they're all in each other's faces and there's always sniffles and colds and things going around at daycare. And so many daycares are calling for the use of rapid testing. BC has them. Let's use them, especially in the daycare care setting. And as you can hear from Allison there, boy, have they ever had to adapt and adapt quickly. All sorts of uh, new things that they've got there to help try to keep kids and the staff safe. This is Mornings with Simi. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. You know, it felt like for a while there, a couple months ago, that people were really starting to think again about traveling and going places and booking things. And it felt like the tourism industry were perhaps poised on the edge of a bit of a comeback. But now we're talking about another uphill battle, all the devastation in terms of the flooding and what it's done to our roads and, you know, being asked not to travel. Well, and now the Omicron variant, once again, adding to the woes of the tourism industry. Well, to talk more about that, joining us now is Walt Judas, CEO of the Tourism Industry Association. Good morning, Walt. Good morning, Simi. Is it hard to stay optimistic, Walt, in your job? I imagine it must be. It is. <laughs> It really is. Uh, just when you think, as you alluded to, we are coming out of uh, 
a really dark period for our industry. You layer on now these weather events, and a lot of people are losing hope, to be sure, and it is discouraging. We do see some good signs for next year, and I think that's what everybody is holding on to. But at the same time, we have to deal with the here and now, and that is the impact on tourism businesses as a result of the latest catastrophe. You said that you're seeing some signs of, you know, optimism. What are those? Well, for example, the cruise lines are planning itineraries out of Victoria and Vancouver. We're seeing uh, many people interested in cruising again. We're seeing a lot on the meetings and convention side. Of course, that's been idle for the last 20 months or so. And the bookings are there in places like Victoria and Vancouver and elsewhere around the province. So we take that to be a good sign. We're also seeing, obviously, an increase in the lift that the airlines are providing into Vancouver. Routes are being reestablished, etc. So those are all things that we're holding our our hat onto that um, are positive for our sector going forward. But at the same time, we still have to deal with some of the issues today, notwithstanding the weather events. We have the PCR tests that are dissuading people from traveling here. We've got the new variant that is now an issue. So uh, there's cautious optimism, but at the same time, I, I would suggest there is fear as well. Yeah, you talked about bookings for conferences and conventions and things like that, because I know that down in the States, those are happening, right? They are happening in a very big way. And in fact, aside from meetings and conventions, when you look at some of the sporting events that have taken place in the United States or festivals and concerts, they're completely packed out. You know, you see a a college football game with 110,000 people in the stands. So in the U.S., certainly they're uh, they're very much uh, so-called back to normal, if you will, in many respects. We're not quite there here yet in Canada. But in British Columbia, we've been generally ahead of other provinces and territories, uh, taking all the necessary health and safety precautions. And now, of course, you can go to a Canucks game and and uh, we had Lions and Whitecaps and festivals are kicking back up again. And we've got the Christmas light events at Capilano and Van Dusen. Those are things we didn't see a year ago. So there are good things happening here as well. But at the same time, we know that we have to continue to take the health and safety precautions so we can continue participating in those events. Is it a bit trickier now to the Walt, though, because those federal supports aren't all there, but in some cases they are, right? Like, what, what is there for the tourism industry? Well, there are still federal supports. And in fact, there is a bill before the House now that uh, we had hoped to see passage before Christmas that does provide a significant amount of support for the tourism sector in the form of grants. And, and uh, so the, the, the support systems are still there in many respects. But look, if this continues, if we uh, start to shut things down again, we're going to need access to those supports in fairly short order. And it still could be months away. The province is still also providing grants to businesses, whether it's uh, specific tourism businesses or festivals and events and arts and culture, etc. Those are still being distributed and will be now through until the end of March. But we have a close eye on what our industry is experiencing. And certainly if more support is needed, we will be working with uh, the provincial and federal government to ensure that's in place for all operators so that we get through to a period where COVID is in the rearview mirror and we can begin to operate with some degree of confidence and certainty going forward.
So what is it that people do you think, well, are looking for? Or did you have an indication of what they were planning for? In terms of... Like uh, travel and, and, you know, tourism. Yeah, I think that uh, obviously health and safety is at the top of the list. And I think most people are looking at any country they travel to, and in our case, in our province, to see how we're managing uh, our uh, COVID variant, for example, and whether we are keeping the case counts under control. But I think one of the big things that uh, we need is the confidence that it's okay to travel here. And, and some of the regulations in place or some of the directives in place are certainly helpful, whether you need to be doubly vaccinated or you need to have a test upon arrival, et cetera. That gives people confidence. At the same time, uh, the latter, having the PCR tests upon arrival or being randomly selected or eventually for all international travelers having to be tested upon arrival, uh, again, as I mentioned before, could dissuade people from traveling right. here. But it's, it's certainly knowing that we're taking all the health and safety precautions, that, uh, that we have a high degree of vaccination amongst the general population gives people that confidence. But it's also leaders stepping up, whether it's in government circles or otherwise, saying, look, your business or businesses are doing everything possible to ensure people are being kept safe. So feel free to travel, take the necessary precautions, but make sure the travel is a part of what you're planning to do, mm-hmm. not only to help our industry, but obviously for the health and safety and well-being of people that, uh, that really need to visit with family and friends and, and do things for recreational mental health purposes. Right. So since the rules changed a bit then, Walt, have we seen the, just real tourists coming here from the United States, from other countries? We have, but at the same time, we've also seen a lot of people cancel their vacations, particularly those that were planning to come here over the Christmas period, which is one of the busiest periods of the year, particularly for ski resorts. Uh, I know of one resort that uh, once the new PCR test rules were put into place, that is uh, the random testing process and eventually everybody to be tested, they lost $100,000 in business in one day for people from people coming from places like um, Australia, New Zealand, and the UK, etc. So um, there, there are some problems, to be sure, that we need to overcome. At the same time, what we're seeing is a lot of locals uh, deciding to buy seasons passes or day passes to their local resorts, which is certainly helping them, the resorts themselves specifically, but not necessarily the greater tourism ecosystem. Right. So there's always little pockets, right, of things that we hope will make up for the fact that we're waiting, 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 yes. waiting. Yeah, indeed. And again, it's locals deciding to hunker down and stay closer to home and experience what they have in their own backyard, which is very, very helpful. Certainly keeps people employed and keeps the resorts open, etc. But we really need that to extend beyond locals. So that the hotels are occupied, the restaurants, sea visitation, the attractions, the transportation companies, etc. It's all part of that ecosystem, as I referenced, and that's absolutely necessary. Otherwise, we run the risk of losing more people from our industry at a time where we have a significant staff shortage at most tourism operations around the province. Have a lot of people left the industry? Yes, unfortunately, yes. And it's very difficult to bring them back, especially at a time where they aren't confident about the immediate future of the industry. They've left either permanently or they've gone to other jobs and 
And especially those seasonal operators, and in many cases, they require staff that is highly specialized. If you've got lift mechanics, by way of example, once you lose them, you may not get them back at your particular ski hill or resort. They could have gone to another resort or left the province entirely. And those are very, very difficult positions to recruit for. All right, Walt, listen, best of luck. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Simi. Walt Judas is the CEO of the Tourism Industry Association, talking about the ways in which that industry continues to try to pivot and try to look for the positive. This is Mornings with Simi. You've probably heard the phrase, build back better. It's kind of a catchphrase for the idea that all these things that have been devastated during COVID-19, that when we start to do them again, we'll improve upon them. We'll do things that we weren't doing before. One of those areas is definitely tourism. We know the tourism sector has taken a lot of hits. We were just talking about that with Walt Judas a little bit earlier on the show. But now there's a new campaign out that is hoping to, well, build back better when it comes to tourism and also emphasizing Indigenous-led attractions and experiences, something we should have been doing a long time ago. Well, joining us now is Royce Twin, who's the president and CEO of Destination Vancouver. Royce, thank you for being here. Good morning, Simi. Thanks for having me. Tell me about this campaign. What is it all about? Well, it's actually not really a a campaign so much as it is a memorandum of understanding with Indigenous Tourism BC, who's really the lead with Indigenous Tourism experiences here in the province. And our relationship really got formalized yesterday so that we could work intentionally in supporting the Indigenous tourism sector uh, by helping it rebuild, especially uh, in the Vancouver area proper. Okay, so what does that mean? How do we get more Indigenous pers- uh, tourism business to, to live and breathe in this province, specifically in Vancouver? So, for example, we've only got five Indigenous tourism-led businesses in Vancouver proper, including the peninsula. Uh, that means there's room for a lot more. So how do we do that? How do you encourage those businesses to be created, especially in such a difficult time right now? Well, there's three intentional actions that we took uh, to help really formalize this partnership. One, uh, let's invest in Indigenous youth. So we're establishing a scholarship to support Indigenous youth uh, for courses or uh, education related to tourism. Uh, the second thing that we need to do to better understand what the needs are is to hire an Indigenous specialist to help us work with the Indigenous communities, the three host First Nations. What opportunities are out there? How do we bridge the cultural gaps to bring them to life? And then thirdly, it's really around storytelling and content. And Talking with Brenda Baptiste, who's the chair of Indigenous Tourism BC, she told us a story about walking around downtown Vancouver with an elder who started to point out all of these special gathering spots, all of these places that have been paved over uh, that need to come back to life again. So there's an opportunity for storytelling here that we can support. Oh, and that's the kind of thing tourists love, Royce. What has taken us so long to do something like this? Yeah, that's a great question. This is really a long time coming. You know, as a city designated for reconciliation in 2014, I just wonder whether or not the will was there to really recognize and step into the space and do it. And with our mandate change that we did earlier this year, uh, the feedback we received is that, you know what, you really need to be a lot more intentional around diversity, equity, inclusion, uh, specifically around reconciliation. And so the advice was stop talking about reconciliation, take reconciliation action. Does this also change how we kind of sell ourselves to the world too, right? Like before it was always about, oh, it's beautiful, natural British Columbia and, you know, look, come see the scenery. But this gives us another story to tell. 
A hundred percent. And this, these are the stories that we really want to try to elevate. We know there's a demand for it. We know that there are travelers that are coming to Vancouver that are specifically looking for more than just the beauty. That's nice. But there's this rich cultural fabric of Indigenous history here that um, we really have not been able to pull out intentionally. And that's what they're looking for. It's a whole other layer and dimension to our city that I just can't wait for us to, to pull it back and reveal it. So what are some of the things that you perhaps envision? What A tourist coming uh, to our area after we've really kind of emphasized all this, what are some of the things that you would like them to be able to do? Well, if you took them through an entire day, how about getting out on a traditional canoe? We do have a, a tourism experience provider, Takaya Tours, who does a great job in taking people out and learning about the land. After you do that, would there be an opportunity to to meet with elders and learn more about the rich culture and history uh, within the land. And then thirdly, what about some dine-out options? Currently, we have one restaurant. If you haven't been, it's Salmon and Bannock. It's absolutely fantastic. Indigenous-run, owned, uh, and the dishes there are really authentic with a modern twist. What about some more options that we could have here to really sort of spread out? Those are just some of the things off the top of my head. Uh, the sky's the limit here in terms of what I think we could do. It, it really is. What kind of timeline do you foresee for building these up? Uh, I think this is going to take a few years, to be honest with you. There's no switch that we can flip. And, you know, we talk about building back better. I would say this is more like investing in rebuilding our visitor economy with Indigenous partners. So I would expect uh, two, three, four, five years at least. Is this something that you think could, could go province-wide too, Royce? Uh, absolutely. Indigenous Tourism BC takes a very active stance throughout the province, working with communities, but communities that want to do this, and I think that's the difference. And if we can establish uh, a little bit of a precedent here, not only for the province, but specifically as a major city in Canada who is stepping into this, I think we have an opportunity to spread um, the influence not only in the province, but to other major urban centers throughout the country. Okay, so if somebody has an Indigenous-led business that they would like to get involved in this, what are the next steps they should take? You can either contact Indigenous Tourism BC or ourselves at Destination Vancouver, and we'd love to have that conversation with you and find out how we can support you and where you want to take it. All right, sounds good. Royce, thank you so much for that. Thanks very much, Simi. Appreciate your time. Royce Twin is the President and CEO of Destination Vancouver, talking about a partnership And you know, it sounds long overdue in this province in particular, uh, but building a a better relationship and and essentially encouraging more Indigenous-led attractions and experiences uh, to help with the tourism sector. I mean, if you were a tourist coming here, you would love to go and experience and spend your money with attractions and experiences like that. So what are we waiting for? I can't wait to see what happens in a couple of years with that.